This is the East Dramacast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Welcome to the next edition of TraumaCast. I am Carrie Valdez from Central Michigan University. Dave Morris and I had the opportunity to attend the 2017 AAST meeting in Baltimore, Maryland last week. We interviewed leaders in the field of trauma surgery, critical care, and emergency general surgery. I'm going to do something a little different this time and split this TraumaCast into three separate recordings. We have about an hour and a half of fantastic interviews, and I couldn't bear to cut any of them just to fit it into a shorter TraumaCast. So we'll bring you the full interview gamut in three recordings. I hope you enjoy the interviews as much as we enjoyed doing them. Let's get started with our first interview with none other than Dr. Coimbra, the president of AAST. All right, I'm standing here with Dr. Raul Coimbra, the uh, president of AAST. Up until when? When is the official handover of the baton, Dr. Coimbra? Two more hours. <laughs> Two more hours. Well, you've done a great job this year, and thank you for all you've done for the society. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a great meeting, a great science. Uh, we had uh, two master lectures. Uh, uh, master surgeon lectures, uh, Dr. Hoyt and Ari Lepanimi, they, they were phenomenal. And this morning uh, we were treated by a phenomenal talk from uh, Ron Mayer who gave our fits oration. So uh, all in all the meeting has been a success and uh, I'm very pleased with the outcome. Yeah, as a participant I think it's been a good mix of kind of telling us where we're at in the state of science and then where we're headed to. And I think Dr. Mayer just epitomized that, that, that we've got the next challenge ahead of us. Yes, exactly right. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to run this uh, meeting and to be president of AST this year. We have a lot of work to do ahead of us. We had a strategic retreat about 10 months ago, and um, that set the direction for the organization in the next uh, three to five years. We um, are working on three areas that emerged from the retreat, membership services, research, and uh, the ownership of acute care surgery. Uh, many of the goals that we established uh, for this three to five year period have already been accomplished and kudos to the uh, membership membership of the organization and uh, several committees that worked very hard and uh, now I pass the baton to a phenomenal leader Mike Rotondo who uh, certainly will uh, keep the momentum going and uh, will deliver on the on the retreat goals great thank you Dr. Coimbra appreciate it my pleasure I'm standing here with Dr. Sam Arbabi, who was the discussant on the very first paper today regarding beta blockers in critical ear patients with traumatic brain injury. These are the results from a multi-center prospective observational AAST study. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. If you have a moment to uh, describe for us what the paper uh, reviewed and then what the conclusions were. So as you mentioned, Dr. Lay and colleagues did a prospective uh, study. This is observational, so there was no treatment. But what they did was they looked at patient traumatic, uh, the trauma, blunt trauma patients who had traumatic brain injury, the group that received beta blockers, and the group that did not receive beta blockers. And as, as, as the study suggests, this was prospective, so all the data was prospectively entered. And then they compared the group, the two groups, as an observational study. And what they noted was that patients that had 
beta blockers had much better mortality compared to patients that did not. And in that group, uh, groups of beta blocker patients, the group with propanolol did better. Overall, there has been a long-standing discussion regarding beta blockers in trauma. It started with single-center studies in 2006 that initially uh, presented by us and by others in AAST meeting, actually. And there were studies that showed that patients that received beta blockers in trauma did better. More analysis showed that patients with traumatic brain injury, in fact, did better. There is a lot of concern regarding beta blockers in trauma because of the questionable decrease in blood pressure. So one paradoxically thinks that patients with head injury may in fact do worse, but it is that group that in fact does better. And some suggest that it's because of decreased oxygen consumption that this, uh, the beta blockers induce in brain. And by decreasing the oxygen consumption in the brain, you uh, may improve the survival of brain cells in long term. Also, people have noted that there is definitely uh, nutritional benefits, immune system benefits, and potentially hematopoiesis benefits that many of the people in uh, the trauma societies have done multiple research in their area. And Dr. Lay, who was the presenter today, he did a great job, especially being the very first presentation uh, at the meeting. He had started to touch on in his presentation about how trauma increases catecholamines, which will lead to some cerebral stunning in the inflammatory state. Could you just expand on this for me and, and help me understand how the beta blockers can improve the situation? So as Dr. Lay mentioned, uh, in trauma and burns induce significant catecholamine increase. Now, this is actually beneficial if you are, for instance, running away from a lion that took a bite out of you and you're bleeding. You need that because means increase muscle, uh, oxygen delivery to your muscle, which is running. Also, increase oxygen consumption by your heart because it's pumping blood. And it also increases oxygen consumption by your brain because you need to be really alert during those stress times. The problem is ICU. If you come into ICU and you have all that stress level and you have higher oxygen consumption of your brain cells, which you don't need, and you have all, uh, all the stress and blood flow increase to areas that you're not using, that may not be beneficial. Now, studies as far as how long the stress uh, level is up have shown that definitely more than one to two weeks is very high up, but in some, some patients, it goes up to months after injury. Uh, this catecholamine increase will increase oxygen consumption, therefore, it, will, it may increase risk of death of the brain cells, also, it would increase the need for the heart to do more activity. So by, and by doing so, but you have to use more muscle cells and other ways to give you glucose to support this activity. So by bringing this activity down, this sympathetic activity down, you will improve, hopefully, lean body mass. Hopefully, uh, more brain cells will survive. More heart cells would have less ischemia. And we are hoping that the ultimate outcome would be better. In his study, uh, what he demonstrated was propranolol was the preferred beta blocker for getting these beneficial effects. Do you think based on the data we have thus far, his study as well as the other uh, research that's out there, are we at the point that we should be making recommendations for all patients with blunt traumatic brain injury to be placed on propranolol as a scheduled medication? Propanol is a non-selective beta blocker and has uh, beta 1, 2, and 3 uh, inhibitors. Multiple studies have shown that the beta-2 inhibition is where the immune cell response is, and some of the benefits are from that, that group. So initially, a lot of people thought propanol would be a good one. 
Also, uh, it, it does uh, pass through uh, uh, blood-brain barrier better than others because it's a very good lipid-soluble medication. But I don't think we are to the point because propanol has its own issues. Metoprolol, for instance, would be easier to control uh, than propanol. I don't think we are at a point that we can say propanol is better than others, but there is some, some suggestion that propanol will be a good one. I think we are at this point to proceed with a randomized clinical trial at least. And I think in that randomized clinical trial, maybe propanol would be the best medication to use. And I don't think you should uh, target heart rate in this case. I think a SIT uh, medication amount would be better because I don't think you need to get the heart rate down to see the beneficial effects. Well, thank you very much for taking some time with me. This really is cutting edge research. We look forward to future events. Thank you. I'm standing here with Dr. Elizabeth Benjamin from USC in LA County. She just finished giving us her podium presentation, which was very interesting. Her topic was early pharmacologic thromboprophylaxis in isolated severe pelvic fracture is safe and improves outcomes. Thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you, nice to be here. Could you just uh, give us a little background? What made you choose to isolate out pelvic fractures and the timing of DVT prophylaxis? Well, pelvic fractures are a very specific subset of the population of trauma patients. Uh, they have a very high risk of developing DVT and PE. Uh, they're known to be a very high risk injury. Uh, on the flip side, pelvic fractures are also, you know, people have a lot of fear of pelvic fractures and the bleeding risk associated with pelvic fractures. And they're considered a relatively speaking non-compressible hemorrhage and so uh, stopping bleeding is not always very easy. So uh, people have a significant concern in starting anything that might uh, increase bleeding risk. And so, uh, you know, I obviously have a, a bias towards wanting to start VTE prophylaxis very early and uh, I in a personal way feel very strongly that it's safe to start early so this is sort of what what initiated the study for me. And I, I tend to agree with you as a critical care intensivist and trauma surgeons our patients come to us shattered and we want to start DVT prophylaxis and many of our colleagues in, in multiple specialties think that that's insane because don't the patients need to make a clot to stop the bleeding and we're suggesting giving them a medication that would help prevent making clot. So how did you determine in your study what you would call early versus late uh, initiation of pharmacologic prophylaxis? Yeah, so I mean, sort of to your first point, I think a, uh, a really important thing is that we're not talking about full anticoagulation, and I think that's where people in their mind sometimes get uh, a little bit biased. I mean, it's, it's prophylactic doses, so it's really uh, very minimal uh, doses of anticoagulation. Uh, in terms of the time of that, uh, you know, that was a little bit of a clinical decision. Uh, We've done some studies to sort of find where the exact right break point is uh, in, this in these populations, but uh, really when it boils down to it, I think that uh, 48 hours is just a, a good clinical decision point. A lot of people are very concerned starting at 24 hours, and once you start to get out past 48 hours, it, most patients have some stable hemoglobins. They've started to, to stabilize out. So uh, clinically, I think that 48-hour uh, cut point makes the most sense. So let's get to the meat of your results. So you had early prophylaxis is patients who started their DVT prophylaxis before 48 hours, mm -hmm. late is after 48 hours, and then what did you find? We found that early prophylaxis uh, is associated with significantly better outcomes. 
that uh, patients that get started on prophylaxis early before 48 hours have a significantly lower rate of VTE than do patients that get started later. And we also found that prophylaxis with low molecular weight heparin is uh, superior to unfractionated heparin, that there are fewer uh, VTEs in this patient population. The other uh, finding that we found that was that early prophylaxis uh, is associated with improved uh, survival and uh, that low molecular weight heparin is also associated with improved survival. Well, I think this is, is really, really important data that we can take into our clinical practice. So early Lovenox over heparin mm -hmm. in isolated severe pelvic fractures reduces the rate of VTEs, PEs, and improves mortality. That's great work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stand here with uh, Umbar Mehta, who just presented his work in the uh, stage uh, about emergency small bowel resections and failure to rescue. Uh, tell us a little bit about your project, Umbar. Yes, absolutely. So we looked at mortality after emergent bowel resections across the nation and found that there was significant variation across hospitals. And when we tried to look at complication rates, we found that they did not really explain the variation across hospitals. But we did find that hospitals had varying rates of failure to rescue, which was defined as death after a major postoperative complication. So we concluded our study saying that varying rates of failure to rescue were correlated with variations in mortality. And one of the, I think one of the real pertinent questions that came from the audience members was um, whether or not, based on your data, you think that this helps support a regionalization sort of a emergency general surgery system like we have for trauma systems. What are your thoughts on that after working on this project? I think for non-trauma EGS procedures, a regional system may work. Regarding whether our data supports that, I honestly do not know. Um, I think the model, since it's worked very well for trauma, it could be replicated for non-trauma EGS procedures, but we would definitely need data to, to support that. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm with Dr. Brandon Bruns, who is a new member of the AAST. This is his first time being a discussant, and today he was the discussant for Mark DeMoya, who presented interrupted versus continuous fascial closure in patients undergoing emergent laparotomies. This is a randomized controlled trial. Brandon, thank you so much for taking a moment to talk to me. Thank you for having me. If you wouldn't mind, uh, before we get into the paper, you're a new member and this is your first time as a discussant. What was that like and how did that uh, differ compared to when you do a podium presentation yourself? I tell you, the best thing about being a discussant is that nobody gets to ask you questions after <laughs> you talk. So you're, you're kind of safe in that regard. Um, but no, it's a similar experience and it's, it's nice getting the manuscript to review beforehand. You kind of feel like you're in on something. Well, it was nice, and it's nice to have the summary and then the questions that you asked. Uh, can you summarize the paper for us, uh, explain what the authors were trying to do, and then what their outcomes were? This was a very ambitious, randomized controlled trial that they performed over, I believe it was a seven-year period, looking at emergency general surgery patients and the method of fascial closure, specifically comparing continuous running versus interrupted with number zero PDS suture on a tapered needle. They were trying to find out if there was basically a difference in incisional hernia rates and some other clinically important variables. Um, and they found no difference between the two. Uh, the, the interesting thing I thought with the paper was that it was powered for, I think about 194 patients per arm. 
and they enrolled roughly the mid-60s in each arm, so about a total of, I guess it was 130, somewhere in that range. Um, so, so there were definitely some power issues that the authors acknowledged, um, but you know, it's still, I think, a pretty clinically important topic. And I'm glad that you brought that up, because uh, one of the things that the author, uh, Dr. DeMoya, had pointed out in the podium is that he did not find any significant differences, being statistically significant, between dehiscence, surgical site infections, incisional hernias, or 30-day mortalities. And the length of follow-up for these patients averaged about seven months. But one uh, area that he did have a trend is that with incisional hernia rates, there seemed to be a higher trend of 22% of the continuous uh, suture line compared to 13% of patients with the interrupted had incisional hernias being greater than one centimeter within that seven-month follow-up. Where do you think the authors can go from here? Because after a seven-year trial and not getting enough patients to meet power, what do we do with this information? Yeah, that that is truly the million-dollar question. And I just want to stress, you know, I'm not knocking the authors for their enrollment. Um, Anybody who undertakes the endeavor of a randomized controlled trial has my utmost respect and adoration. Um, as far as what to do with the results, I don't think you can conclude anything. Um, I think, as you mentioned, there's definitely a trend, in my opinion, that supports the interrupted closure when it comes to incisional hernia rates. Coincidentally, that is also my clinical bias. Um, to me, it just makes sense. If one suture breaks and you have an interrupted closure, you have a lot of backups. If your suture breaks and you have a continuous closure, uh, there's, there's no little guy there supporting it. I, I mean, to me, the whole thing unravels. That's just my clinical bias. Um, I think one direction the authors could go after this would be a multi-center trial um, inherent in that is going to be all of the difficulties of a randomized control trial amongst multiple centers. But I guess that would be uh, kind of my thoughts on what you can conclude from this. Well, thank you very much for the summary and congratulations on your new baby girls. Thank you. All right, standing with Dr. Don Jenkins, who is a discussant on a paper about the military golden hour. Uh, what were your takeaways from that uh, presentation, Dr. Jenkins? Uh, well, thanks, David. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Howard was the lead author and presenter on this uh, paper, and it was uh, uh, done to validate uh, previous work done with better levels of evidence and to try to address uh, four potential other uh, uh, things that could have influenced the improvement in outcomes once they moved the bar from time of injury in Afghanistan to arrival at definitive care from 90 minutes to 60 minutes. And uh, the end result of that was, by their analysis, 135 soldiers alive who would not have otherwise been had they maintained the 90-minute uh, limit. Now, that was uh, Secretary uh, Gates uh, uh, from the uh, uh, De Department of Defense who initiated that. Uh, and I think that the uh, work was uh, very well received. Uh, there are a couple of things in their analysis uh, that uh, they're going to uh, work on. The manuscript uh, is uh, quite uh, thorough. And in fact, they created a predictive model that has the potential uh, to be able to be used to show uh, what combat casualty outcomes might be if uh, you use different time frames. Uh, they're going to go back and try to sort out what is the 
ultimate time frame, not just an arbitrary time, but see where the inflection point would be to get even more survivors. And maybe it is 60 minutes. It might be a little shorter. That work has yet to be done. And do you think this decrease in the KIAs was the way they have it in the abstract, right? It killed in action. Is that due to quicker transport or better access or maybe movement of resuscitation into the pre-hospital environment in the military? What's your take on it? Or is it all of those things? So in their analysis, they were not able to account for better armor, body armor or vehicle armor. But it did appear that the best predictive factor was the time and none of the other factors. There were changes in the care paradigm over time as more of the pre-hospital retrieval units carried blood products. And so there's some component there that certainly makes that better. What we've also asked them to do is to try to do a little subset analysis to determine if the destination and the capabilities there when they arrived at definitive surgical care were the same across all areas or were there some units that might have better outcomes than others and perhaps that goes to experience and training but could be used in the future again to inform exactly what those combat surgeons and surgical teams need to be prepared to deal with and how we train them. And you think the implications for civilian trauma care are analogous, that the lessons learned from those folks will translate? So it's interesting because the follow-on study that was presented in that same session did discuss that and they looked at the difference in using a helicopter versus an ambulance where perhaps ambulance care was faster. And it seemed that for the sickest penetrating patient population, getting them to the hospital the quickest way was better. But for those that didn't have penetrating injury, the resuscitative care available in a helicopter led to more lives saved. And so again, looking for the sweet spot there in terms of how to triage those patients best is the next bit of work. But it clearly applies to what we do in all walks of life. All right. Well, thank you. I'm standing here with Matt Delano from the University of Michigan. He just completed his podium presentation, Compliance with ACS-COT Recommended Criteria for Full Trauma Team Activation in Association with Under-Triage Deaths. Matt, thank you so much for taking a moment to speak with me. Thank you. Would you take a moment and uh, review your data and tell our audience the conclusions you've come to? What we sought to determine was whether adherence to the six designated uh, ACS Committee on Trauma full activation guidelines were adhered to in the state of Michigan. The reason this is important is because many institutions have homegrown or inbred criteria which they use to designate full trauma activations and sometimes those criteria are based on injury severity scores and not physiologic data. The American College of Surgery Committee on Trauma uh, guidelines as uh, published in the Orange Book are based on physiologic parameters which give us what we think are better insights into who will need a full trauma activation and who will not. Why we think this is important is that there are some preliminary reports in the literature that over triage, over compliance with these criteria are associated with improvements in survival. However, we don't know what under triage or poor compliance with these criteria means for the need for intervention and for uh, corresponding mortality. So what we did is sought to figure out 
in a statewide collaborative Michigan Trauma Quality Improvement Program of 29 ACS COT verified trauma centers in the state. How did they comply to the six ACS criteria? And if they had high or low compliance, how did that impact the need for further interventions and overall mortality? And what we found in summary is that only 66% of the patients across the state that met full uh, trauma activation criteria were actually activated, meaning 34% of patients who had either several or only one of the trauma activation criteria, 34% were not activated. Of the patients that were not activated, 80% of them went on to need either an intervention or an operation. And moreover, of the patients that weren't activated, their mortality was upwards of 30% for all comers versus 4% for those who didn't meet activation criteria. So clearly, patients that do meet activation criteria have a higher associated mortality, and those that didn't meet criteria are most at risk because they're unrecognized. Further, what we did is break down our trauma centers into those that complied highly with the criteria, meaning they complied more than 65% of the time, or those that complied low with the criteria, meaning they complied less than 65% of the time. What we found is that in high ACS COT criteria compliance centers, that they had a 12% reduction in mortality compared to those centers that had low compliance with the need for trauma activation. This implies to us that there is a need to bridge that gap and identify centers with low compliance and help educate and train those centers to be more compliant with the ACS trauma criteria, number one, because number two, it will reduce mortality in the long run and it will save lives across the state. That was a lovely summary. And uh, for full disclosure, I'm actually a trauma surgeon at one of your level two centers north of you. So our center at uh, Central Michigan University is included in this MTQIP data. Uh, my own experience has been patients will meet criteria, but they're evaluated at an outside hospital. They get some trauma evaluation, perhaps some interventions, and then they get transferred. And sometimes that transfer can take many hours. And in those many hours, the patient is completely stable, vitals are fine, GCS is 15. When they arrive at my center, I, I find some feedback or some friction between either my, um, my partners, the ER staff, of why are we making this guy a level one? Because he met level one criteria six hours ago, but he doesn't really meet level one criteria now because now he's hemodynamically stable. How should we best be managing those patients that are transferring into our level one and level two centers? That's a good question. What we do know historically from the literature is that transferring patients into level one or two centers saves lives. Now, how to appropriately triage those patients once they come? What we found is that it doesn't matter when you meet one of the ACS uh, activation criteria. The fact that you have physiologic derangement, which is altered enough to meet those criteria, means that you have a significant aberration and you're in need of medical care. So why activate those and why make the whole team come down and just not take care of them piecemeal? Well, what we hypothesize is that bringing the whole team on board early gets more care providers to the patient quicker to institute more therapies and more management protocols to actually keep those people from falling through the cracks. 
In other words, if we don't activate them and we say, oh, they met criteria six hours ago, but they don't now, what happens is their ongoing physiologic processes are still in place. And then you have one provider doing things linearly in sequence and sometimes taking 24 hours to institute therapies that a whole trauma team might be able to institute in one or two hours. Well, great. Thank you, Matt, so much for taking some time with me. I really appreciate uh, the review, and I can't agree with you more. I think if you've physiologically met criteria at any point during your injury, you have met criteria, and I don't think it's a, a point that should be debated any further. Thank you. All right, that completes the first of our three recordings for the 2017 AAST meeting. Join me and Dave for recordings two and three with more interviews with leaders in the fields of trauma, critical care, and emergency general surgery. Brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.